When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Zach Davis, and Ashley McKinless is out this week because she sounds like... uh, how do I want to put this? She's feeling not great. Her voice sounds like she's been smoking a pack a day for 50 years. So we thought it'd be best that she take some rest for her vocal cords. And you're stuck with me for now, just for this intro. So if, if you are sick of me, you can skip ahead to the interview and the rest of the show. But I don't love drinking alone, so I don't have anything with me today. But if you are looking for a drink recommendation while you're listening to this, I might recommend some Orange Fanta, which, if you don't know, was... Pope Benedict XVI's beverage of choice. That's obviously been the biggest news story this year, and there's been no shortage of commentary on the life of Pope Benedict since he died on December 31st. But one aspect of Benedict's legacy that so many Americans miss is his contributions to Catholic social teaching. So that's what we're trying to get into this week on the show, and we're talking about that with our guest this week, who is John Carr. John's the founder of the Initiative on Catholic Social Teaching and Public Life at Georgetown University. And for 20 years, he led the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So John is a super thoughtful person who has worked in the church for for a long time, but also was, you know, kind of directly responsible for promoting the church's public social justice witness during Benedict's pontificate and beyond. And so we're looking to get some thoughts from him on Benedict's legacy, why so many people kind of overlook this social justice aspect of Pope Benedict. So we're going to get into some really interesting topics with John. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. But that's not been the only news story this year. So and it's been a while since we've been in your feed. So wanted to just take a couple moments and and highlight some stories that that you you might have missed. You obviously probably got all the push notifications about Pope Benedict and his funeral, but there've been a couple other things that have been really big in the Catholic world. Just two days after Benedict's death, we learned that his longtime secretary and confidant, who is Archbishop Georg Ganswein, he's going to be publishing a tell-all memoir. And the publisher says that the book would tell the truth about the, quote, blatant calumnies and dark maneuvers and mysteries and scandals that hurt Pope Benedict's reputation. And so there have been a couple stories that have started to leak out about this. It is certainly bound to cause a stir among those people that watch the Vatican. I mean, there was a lot of tension having, you know, two popes living in the Vatican at the same time. And I think uh, we're going to see some of that come out again. And then on Tuesday evening, Australia's Cardinal George Pell died unexpectedly due to complications following a hip replacement surgery at 81. Cardinal Pell was a close advisor to Pope Francis and is largely responsible for, for reforming a lot of the Vatican's finances. But his work at the Vatican ended in 2019 when he was convicted by an Australian court for abusing two choir boys in the 1990s. Now, that conviction was eventually reversed 
by Australia's highest court, but not until Cardinal Pell had over 400 days in prison in solitary confinement. And, you know, he ended up writing, uh, I believe, a trilogy, like a memoir about uh, his time in prison. He he moved back to Rome. Um, and this kind of caught everybody off guard, right? Uh, he was, you know, he's 81, but he was in pretty decent health other than that. So we've been covering those stories and uh, Pope Benedict's passing from, from so many angles um, on America's website, our YouTube channel, Inside the Vatican. So if you're looking to like go really deep into Pope Benedict's legacy, we've got an obituary that looks at just that. Um, we've got some biographical information, essays about his theology, his prayer life, his record as a, as a church administrator. This show's producer, Sebastian Gomes, has a series of conversations that are, are fascinating on YouTube. And as usual, you can hit up Inside the Vatican for in-depth coverage of all these stories and more. But you might be hearing a new voice, Ricardo Da Silva, joining Jerry. And want to just say it's not because Colleen has left America or inside the Vatican, so fear not. It's because she gave birth to the cutest baby last week, and she is out on maternity leave. So we just want to say congrats, Colleen, and we are cheering and praying for you. Before we get to our interview, which you want to stick around for, we do have a few words from our sponsor this week. So this year... I wanted to create some positive habits that make me feel good, and but also productive at the same time. And that's why I love learning with Wondrium. It's the educational platform with content covering almost any topic you can imagine. Right now, I'm diving into the fundamentals of home maintenance from repairs to renovations on Wondrium. I don't know if you know this, but 38% of Americans are unable to do any home renovations or repairs without outside help. Well, at least 50% of the people on this podcast fall into that category because I am the opposite of a handyman. I, I I really cannot do anything. I am on the phone calling my dad and grandpa for advice on how to do stuff all the time. But the Fundamentals of Home Maintenance series on Wondrium is helping me learn to do a ton of new things around the house, like uh, recalking a bathtub. That's something that's on my to-do list for the year. And with Wondrium, we get unlimited access to thousands of hours of trustworthy audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more. With programs about everything from history to science to baking, there really is something for everyone. And the Wondrium app allows us to take our love of learning to the next level. So you can get inspired anytime, anywhere, learning from top experts and university professors. The content is ad-free, curated, without any pressure of homework or exams. So think of how much you can learn this year with a subscription to Wondrium. And to ring in 2023, Wondrium is offering our listeners a 23-day free trial. But it's only available if you sign up through our special URL. So go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now, stick around for our conversation with John Carr. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is John Carr. John is the founder of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University, and for 20 years he served as director of the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Welcome to Jesuitical, John. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, my my kids and my younger colleagues think I've, <laughs> I've really broken through now that I'm on Jesuitical. <laughs> Well, this is this is big time. Thanks for joining us. I mean, every time I just like look at your bio, I'm like, man, you, you've been in it for a while. 
imagine having a title of director of justice, peace, and human development. That's a that's a tall order. <laughs> I, I was once introduced to a couple, and they said he's in charge of justice, peace, and human development. And the woman looked at me and said, "You need to do a better job." <laughs> that's what I was just going to say. I was reading the newspaper this morning, uh, J- yeah. John. I think you could have done better. <laughs> Yeah. So especially the world peace part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of world events, one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on was to talk about the the passing and legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. For a lot of people our age, he was sort of the first real pope that we could pay attention to. You know, John Paul II was much more like in our childhood memories. I was in college when Benedict resigned and I took a theology Pope Benedict class. I'm wondering if you could just take us back to his election. What was going on with the church and public life at that time? What were people expecting when they saw Joseph Ratzinger kind of emerge as Pope Benedict XVI? We had had decades of John Paul II, who was just a giant on the world stage. I mean, literally changed the face of the world with solidarity. And so no one knew what to expect. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger had had a specific role as head of doctrine for the faith and had a reputation of being, you know, in charge of the doctrine of the faith. So we didn't know what to expect. And then there was this reputation of him as, you know, laying down the line. And one of the things that surprised me and I think surprised others, and I think is neglected, is Pope Benedict, this German theologian who had been an enforcer, was one of the great teachers of Catholic social doctrine. Two of his three encyclicals, Deus Caritas S, Caritas in Veritate. I took four years of Latin. That's all I got left. That means God <laughs> is love and love and truth. But those are incredibly powerful examples of Catholic social teaching. I think he owned Catholic social teaching, strengthened it, deepened it, and expanded it. There was so much commentary, some of it terrific in the pages of America and elsewhere, and some of it really superficial and glib. But one area that was really neglected was the contributions and the leadership he showed as a teacher of Catholic social teaching. Yeah. So you have this great line in a piece you wrote for America shortly after Benedict resigned, and then we give it another push after his passing, but you say, Benedict's greatest disconnection from U.S. elites may not be about sex, but social and economic life. And I think most people understand what that first part means. You know, people see him at not just Pope Benedict, but the Catholic Church as the church of like, no, like no sex, no abortion, no contraception. But let's unpack maybe where his Catholic social teaching would challenge Americans in even more profound ways. The first thing that's funny is, the, as you suggest, the fact that the church opposes abortion and defends family life shouldn't be news uh, to anybody. And the fact that Benedict affirmed those and uh, pushed those forward was no surprise. I think for some people, it was a surprise that he, as I said, deepened it. There's always been this discussion of charity and justice in Catholic social teaching. Everybody sort of understands we owe some charity towards the poor, but work on justice, that may be a bridge too far. And he said, justice is the primary way of charity. He said, you can't be charitable unless you're just. 
And what he did was he placed Catholic social teaching at the middle of Catholic life. He said, caring for the poor and vulnerable, standing with them in their search for justice, is indispensable. He said there are three things that are required, proclaiming the gospel, celebrating the sacraments, and lifting up and caring for the poor and vulnerable. What you're saying is it goes beyond just giving to the collection basket. That's not enough in terms of charity. And it's integral. It's not optional. You know, you don't, if you go to mass, if you listen to the homily, that's not enough. You have to be involved in works of charity and justice. And those two things are linked. Uh, One of the things he said was that working for justice is political charity. And that's just not the way people think. And when Caritas and Veritate came out, it struck me that it's really underrated. A friend of mine said that. And I think part of it was some people didn't like the messenger. There are a lot of my friends on the left who were sort of down on Benedict. And some people didn't like the message. My friends on the right did not like the way it challenged us to change structures, to focus on a priority for the poor. And then another area where Benedict got to get enormous credit, he was the one who extended in a fundamental way Catholic social teaching to care for creation. And these are sort of attributes that typically used when people are describing Pope Francis. But you're saying that Benedict is someone who was like equally strong on some of these points, right? Like you see people calling Pope Francis a socialist or a, a tree hugger, but could they have also applied these criticisms to Benedict? Obviously, uh, John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis are very different kind of leaders. And, you know, and some before your time, but John Paul II was... Uh, a global leader, a witness to solidarity. Benedict was a global teacher with a focus on love and truth. And without dismissing him in any way, I think this is more important than ever, Francis is a global pastor who talks about justice and mercy. But the thing that probably connects them the most is their commitment to Catholic social teaching, to the fact that this is an integral part of our faith that caring for the poor, working for justice, caring for creation, practicing solidarity is at the core of what it is to be a member of the church. Benedict gave a very powerful uh, homily about care for creation. He wrote one of his World Day of Peace messages, if you want peace, care for creation. But it was a mass, and he talked about our responsibility to the earth. And Uh, A wire service reporter, I don't know if it was AP or Reuters or somebody else, said that Pope Benedict cared so much about this, he wore green vestments. (laughs) And it was, you know, the 23rd Sunday in ordinary time. Every priest in the world wore green vestments. But he became the green pope. He was the first pope, I think, to talk about the planet as our common home which became the title of Pope Francis' encyclical. So uh, Francis is obviously taking it forward. Uh, he's, it is the first encyclical. But uh, we owe a lot to Benedict to remind us that care for creation is not a political option. It's a requirement of our faith. 
You mentioned that some of your friends maybe didn't like the message of Pope Benedict's encyclical. And I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe in more practical terms what the challenge Pope Benedict was issuing to a, a country and an economy like we have in the United States. What what would putting his vision of justice in, into practice look like here? Imagine this. You have the Pope in his understated, careful way that in the course of a year said the war of Iraq in Iraq was wrong, that nothing good came from that war, which is what he said. And I think he proved it to be true about that, who said the measure of a society is how we treat the least of these, and that nations that are cutting their safety nets to invest in other things are failing in a moral sense, who said you ought to care for the life of all, starting with the unborn, but also immigrants and prisoners and people on the margins. And then set a test of our discipleship was whether we care for God's creation and protect it for future generations. That does not sound like the Republican Party. That does not sound like the Democratic Party. One of the things that is powerful about Catholic social teaching is if you really listen, if you don't just try and find, you know, the quotes that support your agenda, it challenges all of us. When Pope Francis says, I want a poor church for the poor, he makes me really uncomfortable. I am not poor. Uh, my parish is very mixed parish, but uh, I don't think we fit that criteria. And so the challenge of Catholic social teaching cuts across the political, ideological, national boundaries. And frankly, uh, that makes us uncomfortable which is probably a really good thing. You know, it's funny because people always talk about like Catholic social teaching being this, like the church's best kept secret um, and sort of bringing this back to Benedict. Like when I think about the church and its public witness at that time, it was, you know, this is pre-Trump. It's, you know, the bishops versus Obama, like all the time doing battle over like contraception mandates and things. And, you know, talk about justice, didn't usually dominate the headlines. It was sort of like, as you said, like because people either didn't like the message or the messenger. I'm wondering what your analysis is of why that was the church's public witness at that time, at least at least in how it's seen in my memory in, in a lot of newspaper headlines. Two things can be true at once. Uh, the church and its leaders may have been obsessed with matters of human sexuality to the detriment of other things, at least in uh, how they articulated their priorities. But it's also true that, uh, no offense, journalists seem obsessed with those things as well. The Pope can do a 20-minute, you know, state of the world speech, and there are important integral lines saying it's wrong to destroy an unborn child. And the headline will be Pope reaffirms position on abortion and not talking about care for creation or lifting up the poor or defending immigrants. Benedict, all of us are really complicated and have different sides. If, if you think there might be two kinds of leadership, if you think that the culture is overwhelming us, if the world is uh, abandoning our values, 
Then there's a temptation to sort of hunker down to preserve and protect what we have and to maybe proclaim what we believe and then to judge others who don't share those beliefs. And that's clearly a part of who Benedict was and what his leadership was. There's another kind of leadership when you think the world needs what we have to say about the priority for the poor or about human life and dignity or about care for creation. And then you engage and persuade. And I think Benedict was a combination of both those things. And a lot of the people who decide what's important said the first thing is more typical of the church, more typical of this pope, and frankly, of more interest to us, and they neglected it. The idea that Catholic social teaching is our best kept secret, I used to say that all the time in my speeches. And then I finally realized that was my fault and your fault and America's fault. I mean, if if it's a secret, we haven't shared it. Yeah, I can definitely confirm that, you know, from our side at America Magazine, I, I do think there is a hunger for, you know, deep reflections on Catholic social teaching, but there's always that temptation to feed the people kind of what they want in the moment, which is often, you know, sensational stories about in-church fighting or liturgy wars or abortion politics. And so it is, yeah, incumbent upon people like us to to not keep keep this secret, I think. Well, and candidly, America does a lot better than most. I'm, I'm a proud alumnus of America. John, I want to take the opportunity to also talk to you about your involvement in the church's sort of guidance on political life and voting from when you were working at the Bishop's Conference. Um, I was fascinated to read in the 2020 election, you, you wrote a piece for America that was, I helped write the Bishop's first document on Catholics and voting. You explained why you were voting for Biden, not Trump at that time. Uh, I wonder if you could just take me back to the 70s when you're, as you say, a young staff person working at the Bishop's Conference and, and you suggest, you know, hey, we should write something about this. Well, it's a long time ago, like 50 years. I was a young staffer and, you know, a bunch of us, not just me, said, why don't we pull together what the church says about that? And the first statement, it was called political responsibility. I think it was like 1,300 words. And then, you know, an outline of what the church teaches. I think the last faithful citizenship document was about, you know, 15,000 words. <laughs> and things are a lot more complicated. But uh, I think maybe we ought to read the one from 1976. It might be helpful. What was the gist of that one? Well, it was that you ought to vote your conscience informed by Catholics' teaching. One of the great messages of Pope Benedict was in the middle of uh, an encyclical. He said it's not the role of the church to impose its doctrine. Its role is to form consciences so that people will act differently in political life, even when it contradicts their interests. And that's where the title of the 
it used to be called faithful citizenship, and it's now called forming consciences for faithful citizenship. And it was that this is not just whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a union member, or a business person, black, white, Latino. This is a, a reflection of our faith. And we don't impose our values, but we use our principles to make complicated choices. And they're more complicated than ever. Uh, I mean, we're talking about issues of life and death, of, of war and peace, of who moves ahead, who gets behind. So the, the piece I wrote for America, which I had never done before, I had always worked for the institutional church. And those who read it will see I was a lot more clear about why I couldn't vote for President Trump. And that was before the election, before January 6th, and before the chaos of you know the last two years. And I think that judgment has been reinforced in multiple ways. And I said, uh, for grave reasons, even though I disagreed profoundly with uh, the Democratic Party and Biden's position on abortion, I thought that I could justify a vote. I'll be honest, I am deeply disappointed that after Dobbs, uh, the Biden administration, including the president, has embraced the extremism of the Democratic Party on that. When the Affordable Care Act passed, 70 Democrats, I was in the middle of that fight, 70 Democrats uh, voted to keep abortion out of the health care plan. And now we're down to just a handful. We were better off when the pro-life cause was not contained in one party and certainly much better off than having Donald Trump symbolize the political version of that. Yeah. Well, that has been a major flashpoint in discussions around faithful citizenship, the inclusion of the language of abortion being the preeminent issue for, for Catholics when it comes to voting. I'm wondering, when, when did that, I imagine that wasn't in the 70s short version. Uh, so when did that get inserted? And how do you think that has shaped the church's witness and influence in politics? When I worked at the Bishop's Conference, I said, we got to put a sign out in front of our building, nuances are us, because <laughs> there are, you know, you have to diagram the sentences. It's actually the, not the case that preeminent priority is in the faithful citizenship document. It was added in an introductory letter the bishops adopted to share forming consciences for faithful citizenship. And it was, you know, debated. And my own view is the preeminent priority is the defense of human life and dignity. And that's tested in a lot of ways, but especially the humanity of the unborn child. But also, I mean, Pope Francis called the Mediterranean a graveyard for immigrants. We still have the death penalty in states and nobody with any money ends up on death row. And now euthanasia, what's going on in Canada, America has written powerfully on this, the pressures on the old, disabled, and the poor to end their lives for utilitarian reasons. So one thing that unites Benedict and Pope Francis is a commitment to human life and dignity wherever it's threatened. And I think that is a better basis on which to look at our politics and our policy than singling out one issue, even though I, I'm, I am and have been pro-life 
all my life and will always be. But my definition is all life, every life. John, I want to get your take on a controversial question related to that, which I think people use this idea of abortion being the one issue that's preeminent to argue for denying Catholic politicians access to sacrament of the Eucharist. I'm wondering, as someone who's worked for a long time on the idea of Catholics in public life, should that be happening? That's a terrible idea. Just a terrible idea. It hurts the Eucharist. I think it hurts the pro-life cause. I think it hurts politics. Imagine if we had spent the last year talking about the humanity of the unborn child and the need for a child tax credit to help lift up those kids and poor kids instead of fighting about who should go to communion. In my parish, we, got, we need to be inviting people back to the Eucharist, not telling people who can't go. We're a 50-50 country. We're a 50-50 church. And if, if you say the president can't go, he may be the only politician I know who goes at least as regularly as I do, then what conversations happen in every parish, in every family? This is a diversion. We've never done this. No one else does this in the world. So it seemed to me trying to use a, a sacramental means to accomplish a political ends, and it threatened both the sacraments and politics. So in case you haven't noticed, I think this is a really dumb idea and was a huge diversion from what we should be focused on. Mm. I think a lot of people today see at least the loudest voices in the bishops' conferences as being very political because of fights about denying communion to politicians. I'm wondering from your vantage point, having worked with the bishops for over 40 years, has that always been the case um, or ha has that changed? Having said the bishops, some bishops made a big mistake. Let me say a word of defense. I worked for 25 years at the bishops' conference. I worked on family leave. I worked on the child tax credit. I worked on religious liberty. I worked on health care. I worked on anti-poverty programs. And we were fully supported by the bishops. I think there are two issues. One is sort of a passion problem that it seems sometimes we're more eloquent, we're more passionate, we're more committed about some things than others. But the other is a visibility issue. The church of all things did enormous work on relief of third world debt, on HIV and AIDS, working with Democrats and Republicans. Literally millions of people are alive today because of that work. Yet, I don't think most people have any clue of that. So again, maybe the theme of this is two things can be. It can be true that the perception is, and sometimes the reality is, that we're preoccupied by some things. But it's also true that every day we serve the homeless, the hungry. We work to defend the dignity of others. And if we ever came together to make that case, to no matter what our party, our ideology, our geography, we'd be dangerous. We could make a big difference. I want to shift our conversation a little bit to another legacy of 
Benedict's that people are rating is is mixed, and that's his handling of the sexual abuse crisis. I want to read from an article that you wrote in America in 2018, where you said that clerical sexual abuse is personal, professional, and institutional. It's haunted my service of the church for more than five decades, involving the abuse of people, power, and trust, and a clerical culture that enabled it and covered it up. You know, as I mentioned at the top, you, you've you've been working in the church for a really long time. I'm wondering what your reflections are from your own vantage point, just limiting it to to Benedict for right now, but how the church handled the sexual abuse crisis during his pontificate. Let's unpack that a little bit. Personal, I'm a survivor of clergy sexual abuse. Uh, professional, I worked for the bishops of the United States for decades. And institutional, nothing has done more damage to the community I care about than this. No one did enough. No one. But it, in fairness, even as you say that, Benedict did not do enough. But it is also fair to say that he did more than most. When the head of the Legionaries of Christ, who was notorious for abuse of horrific scale, was protected by others in the Vatican, Benedict was the one who said, enough, we have to deal with this. And that all came to light and he was removed. I understand secrecy. I was secret about my own experience for a long time. And I found myself, we did 12 sessions on sex abuse as a part of our initiative. And I found myself saying secrecy is a part of the problem. And then I realized that, frankly, I had been secret about, I had not told my wife, I had not told my kids, never told my parents. And so I, uh, I am really committed to a different way, transparency and accountability, but I'm less judgmental about silence since I was silent. So I think the legacy of Ratzinger and Benedict is mixed and better than most and not as good as we needed. First of all, I just want to say thank you for for, for sharing that and, and for your service to the church. I, I mean, you, your vantage point is such a unique one and one that inspires me. How are you able to not become disillusioned with the church, you know, you mentioned th there are at least three reasons why you could have, right? Both your your personal experience, your professional experience, and your your institutional experience. I, I maybe only have one of those, right? Like an institutional relationship to sexual abuse, covering it at America, and it, I was tempted to despair and to kind of give up on stuff. How did you stay in it? Well, it's really tough. I'm in recovery from alcoholism and uh, hopefully, you know, every day. And I think there were times when being a part of all this kind of contributed to me ending my day uh, alone in my recliner uh, drinking. The process of recovery teaches you that things can get better, that uh, restitution can be made, that the truth matters. And there are days when I wonder how I'm, how long I'm hanging. But Jesus, the gospel, and our social tradition for me. And so 
it's an institution with its failures, but also its mission. And I believe in the mission of the church. And it's, I worked in politics. I worked at the White House. I worked with Coretta Scott King. But for me, this is home. And the fact that your home can be a mess uh, calls you to help clean it up, not, not to move out. And, but I would, you know, I want to be clear. There are, there are days and times when I wonder. He mentioned that Benedict didn't do enough, but I think a lot of people would say that, you know, Pope Francis hasn't done enough and JP2 didn't do enough. So like across the spectrum of our of our church, people have failed on this issue. Why do you think that is? Is that is that connected to the secrecy? Is it just fallen human nature? Like why why can no one seem to get this right? Well, it's all of that, but my take is it's not ideology. Some of the worst people are those who try and use the sex abuse crisis to advance their agenda. People ought to be more faithful or celibacy is the problem or homosexuality is. This isn't about those things. This is about power. This is about the abuse of power by those who did this and those who enabled it and tolerated it. Pope Francis is, you know, I love Pope Francis, but he is an old Argentinian celibate cleric, you know, Italian roots. And he, you know, had those blinders. The story that just so profound for me, I've come to know Juan Carlos Cruz, who was a survivor and I, th- I believe it's Chile. And Pope Francis was told he was very outspoken in going after the hierarchy for what happened to him. And Francis was told that uh, this guy was not authentic, that he was a liar. And a friend of his said that. And he went out and he said, these people are not telling the truth. I think he called him a liar. It was awful. As, as a survivor, uh, horrible, go after the victims. And he went back to the Vatican and someone, said, you've been misled, you've got this wrong. You ought to invite Juan Carlos and two other people to come. And they came and they stayed with the Holy Father in Rome and they spent a lot of time together over the weekend. And the Pope listened and he learned. And he came out of that and he asked for the resignation of the entire hierarchy of Chile and accepted the resignations of a bunch of them. My point is isolation, not ideology, is a big part of the problem. If there were parents, especially women, mothers in the room, we would have had a different response than I was in some of those rooms, sometimes the only lay person, and I just looked at it differently. Short of murder, this was the worst thing that could happen to your family. And so they sort of looked at it in terms of the priest, and I was looking at it in terms of my sons. So isolation is a huge part of the problem. The one thing we've learned at the initiative is you got to put survivors at the center. We won't do a gathering without the voice of survivors. And I think that's a lesson for the whole church. John, I want to thank you for for coming on the show for being honest and candid and vulnerable but also like I'm, I'm still counting myself as a young adult professional Catholic I, I, 
I, I'm acutely aware of that Ashley and I sort of stand on your shoulders and, and really want to thank you for all you've done for our country and for our church. And you're still doing it. And so I'm excited to see where this new role takes you uh, wow. at the initiative. Uh, we, do have, we do have one final question for you before you go. Yeah. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I've actually thought about this. I would like to work for the canonization of Sergeant Shriver. Uh, you may not know him. Your listeners may not know him. Sergeant Shriver was a member of the Kennedy family. He was an in-law, and he helped elect John Kennedy, worked on civil rights. He started the war on poverty. He's worked globally with the Peace Corps. He had a huge family. He and his wife started the Special Olympics. He went to Mass every day. He read theology. I'm a lay person, and I think we need more lay people stepping up to carry out these principles. And this was a guy who, in the middle of politics, in the middle of family life, in the middle of business, stood up every day for the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So. I think it'd be great to have a lay, married dad who worked in public life, who not perfect, but tried to do the right thing in lots of ways that made a difference, and an American. That'd be a, a great saint to have. And, and unlike you know a lot of people that come on the show, or like me and Ashley, I think you've got the ear of some people that can kind of make that happen. So uh, well, stay tuned. It, uh, apparently, it's a long <laughs> process, and it takes a lot of stuff. and. I don't know that I have time, but I'd love to. I'd love to be a part of it. It it would send a powerful signal, and frankly, he happens to be a Democrat. It would remind Democrats they can be pro life and stand up for what they believe. So I think he'd be a saint for our times. All right, Saint Sergeant Shriver. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> John. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you about all these issues. Well, you said all those nice things about me. I just want to say how much I admire what you're doing, how you do it, who you reach, and that you're a part of the America family. I'm I'm a little part of that family too. I think when we think about how we're gonna make this stuff better, you look for allies. You look for the sanity caucus. <laughs> in the middle of all this craziness. And the two of you and America are part of the Sanity Caucus. Well, thanks for that commercial, too. You can read a bunch of John if you like this conversation in America. So we'll be sure to link to that and, and also link to uh, the initiative on Catholic social thought and public life at Georgetown University, where John is the founder. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, no housekeeping or face sharing this week. Thanks again for listening. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Chris Paul Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And especially if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. That really helps us out. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>